If you would take your Bibles, let's go to Matthew chapter 8. I think with the shenanigans about Sunday school classes going long and all that, I think I've got five minutes left. (laughs) I would encourage you if you have a chance, and uh, they are still doing tours, to take a tour down at Yakima Union Gospel Mission. Uh, I know our staff did that a while back and just really enjoyed uh, the time getting to see the grounds, uh, meet Mike and some of the staff there and be able to hear more, see the medical facility uh, and the things that they're doing that you can read about in the magazine and a fantastic opportunity. And uh, I would encourage you to be able to do that. Matthew chapter 8, we'll finish the chapter and then jump into chapter 9. So we'll start reading Matthew 8 and beginning of verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Chapter 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought him to a pair brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, well, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Would you join me as we just, uh, as we pray and ask God's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word? Our Father, we do ask that you would take your word and you would open it up to us by means of your Spirit, who desires to illuminate us and our hearts, that we would not only read words on a page, uh, but that our hearts would be transformed again and again from one degree of glory into another until we see you face to face. Would you uh, continue to work in us by means of your word for your glory? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In C.S. Lewis's great story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the four Pevensey children have found themselves inside Narnia, a land that is under a curse that makes it always winter. As one of the children, Lucy, finds out, the curse was put on by the White Witch. In a conversation with Mr. Tumnus, a talking fawn, if you've never read the story, uh, she says, the White Witch, who is she? He answers, why, it is she that has got all Narnia under her thumb. It's she that makes it always winter. 
Always winter and never Christmas. Think of that. How awful, said Lucy. Previously, as they, uh, before this scenario, they were uh, meeting. Actually, I think it, it comes later uh, in the story, sorry. They are sitting down to dine in the beaver's house, in the den. And Mr. Beaver gives to the Pevensey children a prophecy of when Aslan comes. Aslan is the allegorical Christ of the story that Lewis is writing about. And Mr. Beaver gives this prophecy and says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Later on in the story, as the children are fleeing from the white witch, they hear the sound of bells jingling, which she has put on the sides of her, um, her chariot and carriage. And as they are running from it, all of a sudden they find out as the chariot overtakes them that it's not the white witch, but Father Christmas. Remember before, it was always winter and never Christmas. Father Christmas comes to the children and says, I've come at last. She has kept me out for a long time, but I have got in at last. Aslan is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening. As the story continues, the snow is melting. The ice is dripping and melting, and the trees are becoming alive again. As winter is being pushed back and spring is coming In the same way, as we're studying Matthew's account of the life of Christ, we are seeing Jesus on the move. Jesus pushing back the curse, making wrongs right, and bringing life. The last few weeks of our series, we've seen Jesus come down from the mountain where he delivered the Sermon on the Mount to be hounded to heal people, surrounded by needy people. We have read of him healing lepers, healing those near to death, healing a friend's mother-in-law, casting out demons from people, and stopping a storm on the sea with just a word. As Matthew has been making clear all along in this gospel, the long-awaited and promised Messiah King is here. Jesus is on the move. He is inaugurating his kingdom on earth by bringing life and salvation to those who are dead in their sins. He is reversing the curse. This King Jesus does not always do things the way that we would expect and often the way we want. He doesn't come with an army to overthrow governments and establish a political, physical kingdom. Instead, he comes for people. He comes to save sinners, to establish his rule and reign in their hearts. We see this as Jesus points out the faith of the centurion or the lack of faith in his disciples the need for faith in who he really is. He is fully God and fully man. He has the ability to heal people of sickness because it is he who has created them in the first place. He has power to stop the raging storm because he brought order to them in the beginning when he formed land and manipulated the seas before with the Red Sea parting or the flood covering the whole earth. And as we'll see this morning, Jesus has authority over demonic powers as the creator has over its creation. He has authority to forgive sins as the judge of all the earth. 
and as the one who by his own life and death will appease the wrath of God. In the portion of Scripture that we read this morning, and now we'll spend a few minutes looking at, Jesus' boat will dock in two different places. In those two cities, we will see as the scenes unfold the unique priorities of King Jesus on the move. We'll notice distinctions between these two scenes that are recorded for us in Scripture. First, as we look at the end of chapter 8, we'll see a priority of Jesus that people are more important than pigs. Thank goodness. In the first scene, Jesus' boat comes to dock in the area of the Gadarenes. The story is also recorded in Mark 5 and Luke 8. Both of those accounts are lengthier in the Matthews, so we gather some information from those recordings as we walk through this text together. The area of the Gadarenes, on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, there was a city named Gadara that was substantially inland, but its uh, province had boundaries that came all the way uh, to the sea. Now Luke will record a city of Gerasa and name it the land of the Gerasenes. So you have the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes, both cities but in the same province, the same area in which Jesus lands his boat. As we read, Jesus steps out of the boat, and Mark records that immediately someone comes up to him. It's no welcoming party. But instead, we meet men who are possessed by demons. Mark and Luke mention one man. Matthew mentions two men. But not to be concerned, Mark and Luke do not say only one man came up to Jesus so as to exclude the possibility that there are more or two men, as Matthew records. And sometimes when we're recalling as to a friend or someone else that we saw a former classmate in the grocery store that we haven't seen in years, we're not lying to leave out that we also saw they had three children with them. But the priority of the story is we're seeing an old friend from high school. And so the same can be true here for these men who are recording these stories in their gospel accounts. These demon-possessed men are terrifying. Terrifying to look at. They're dirty, probably bloody, naked maybe, and in a great deal of pain and suffering. No one or nothing can subdue them because of the demons inside of them. They live in tombs among the dead. They've been cast out of the city, out of society, out of homes. The men, as one account gives, are crying all day, cutting themselves. No one can help them or comfort them. No one can even come near to them, as it says here in our text. But they come to Jesus. As soon as he gets off the boat, these men come to Jesus. He knew where the boat was landing when they were making their way to this point. He knew where he was going and who it was who would come out to meet him. Jesus doesn't try to divert their boat somewhere else. While the disciples were just trying to figure out who Jesus was on the sea when he calmed the storm, the demons, when they bring these men to Jesus, make it clear right away they know who he is. They know that he is the Son of God. They know that he's also their eternal judge. And yet we know mere knowledge alone does not bring salvation. The demons are fully aware of who Jesus is, and they are fully aware that they have rejected him. 
They hate him and the kingdom that he is bringing. They hate the springtime that is invading their eternal winter. The demons can speak to Jesus. We'll notice a couple of characteristics. While we won't spend a ton of time looking at demons and exorcisms, because in reality they don't happen all that often within Scripture, they're seen as a suffering that is necessary to be healed from or to recover from. But something that James and other gospel uh, writers in the New Testament make clear that can be rejected, and that by God's word and by prayer, these things can be avoided, and healing can come by means of God's word and God's name. But the demons we see here can speak to Jesus. They talk to him. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? They mention their name in the accounts given in Mark and Luke. They can see Jesus. They can make their way and make these men move all the way to the boat. When Jesus gets out of the boat, they are right there. They're able to comprehend what Jesus is going to do with them in the future. They also know what he's planning on doing with them right now. So out of their desire not to be merely just cast out into no man's land, or they say the country, they don't want to be just left alone without a house, a place to be in. They beg Jesus. Over and over again, the gospel account, uh, especially Mark, shows this word again and again, the begging that happens in this text. They beg Jesus not to cast them out into nothing, but to let them go into a herd of pigs that are some distance away. Pigs. In, In a Jewish book, like Matthew writing to a Jewish audience, it seems strange to have pigs made mention of. Thousands of pigs seen her, uh, being feeding here on a mountainside in a land that must be uh, inhabited by Gentiles. Here we have this insertion about pigs who are feeding nearby. Who cares about pigs, right? Many of you in this room care about pigs. Some of you have pigs. Some of you sell pigs. You raise pigs for food. You raise them for income. As we'll see here in this text, somebody cares a lot about these pigs. We care about animals, don't we? We care about our animals, care about our chickens and our cats. My kids would be devastated if something to happen to any of them. And in fact, they're often on high alert as to hawks in our area. We have a natural care. It's God-given to care for animals and care for God's creation. Why are these demons desiring to go into pigs? Remember, they hate Jesus. They want to do away with Jesus' creation. They're cutting up these men and ravaging their bodies, separating them, isolating them from all community. There are three different groups of people in this story. Apart from Jesus himself, he's interacting with these demon-possessed men. In that, you have two. You have these demons. You have these two men. You also have a community of people these men come from. Often, I think the story is read to where we, like the community, are dazzled by these pigs going over the cliff and drowning. We just can't even fathom 2,000 pigs, but all of a sudden being filled with demons and rushing off of a cliff. 
And I, I'll just put it on myself, I can forget about these two men. These are human beings. These are men who are being ravaged and isolated. Men who were probably someone's sons, brothers. Maybe a lady in town was married to one of them. Maybe they were dads with little ones at home. Maybe they were a grandpa or an uncle. Maybe they were a boss or a worker. But they were human beings made in God's image. They were men. They mattered. And while they might have had crazy eyes, broken skin, be able to not be contained by any chains or shackles, it doesn't take away the fact that they mattered. Should not someone care for them? Should not Jesus come and dock his boat right by these tombs where he knows these crazy guys are going to come to him? Jesus docks his boat, not in a Jewish town, in a not-so-nice part of town, and the most unsavory of characters immediately come to him falling on the ground. These are real men, and Jesus comes to them, and they come to Jesus by means of the demons who are possessing them. We've already mentioned some of the characteristics about these demons, but these demons are terrified that Jesus is going to cast them out into nothing. Then notice the way that they speak to Jesus. What have you come to do to us? What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? What are you doing with us? We know what you do with others like us. You cast them out of their homes. Have you come here to torment us? And notice the phrase, before the time that even demons are able to comprehend that there is a time of judgment coming for the evil ones. And they also are able to comprehend that it's not that time yet. And knowing what Jesus does to demons who are living inside of humans, their desire is to be cast out and sent into a herd of pigs. And it's interesting that Jesus, in one word statement, answer, in the other section that we'll look at in chapter 9, he speaks quite a bit. Here in this one, he just simply says the word, go. Actually, it's as though he's giving them permission, not just simply a command to go. He's saying, you may go. You see, the demons need Jesus' permission. He is, after all, the king who has come and the king who is issuing and inaugurating his kingdom. They, in fact, know that if he desired to do so, he could go before his time and destroy them if he wanted to eternally. And yet he does cast them out, and he grants them their wish. And their request is to go into the pigs, and so he allows them. You may go. There are many pigs. 2,000 is recorded elsewhere, and there's lots of demons. 2,000, it would at least seem... The demons run those pigs into the sea. It doesn't make any sense. If the demons are looking for another home, that they would take these pigs that they've just found and cast them all into the sea. It wouldn't make any sense unless their purpose is far more than just having a home. Unless their purpose is to thwart, at any way possible, Jesus' plan of inaugurating his kingdom. How else can they make a whole community of people irritated and frustrated with Jesus to the point that they would want to kick him out of their town. The one who can come and heal them of any disease. The one who can come and provide bread that would feed four or 5,000 people sitting right around him who are in need of food. The one who can do anything. He can calm the storm. 
Yet these demons are able to, by means of killing this commodity, this animal, a creature that God has made, do in such a way that the townspeople come. And it says they fear him. In other texts, they fear him. But instead of fearing him and standing in awe of him, in reverence of who is this that can do that, they beg him to leave the region. The demons want to go into the pigs to drown them, to harm Jesus' reputation before the people of the city, to harm God's creation that he has made. It's interesting that when Matthew makes a note that the herdsmen come and tell everyone what has happened, he states clearly the herdsmen emphasize the redemption of the demon-possessed men. Especially, he says, what happened to the demon-possessed men. And yet it seems that what happened is that the townsfolk cared more about the financial loss of the pigs at the hand of Jesus. Jesus, the miracle worker that they like and welcome, everyone else has come around him and crowded around him, even when the signs and miracles that he did were unbelievable. They welcomed him. They wanted to follow after him. They wanted to hear more, see more. They wanted to bring their sick to him. And yet this miracle worker comes and instead, they reject him and beg him to leave their town. Two men were redeemed. Two men, and Mark and Luke give the story that these men want to become followers of Jesus. These men have just seen legion of demons leave their bodies and go into these pigs and rush them into the sea. Do you not imagine that they just recognize that what they've been saved from? It could have been them. They've been redeemed. They've been saved by this one Jesus. Pigs suffered death, and they were redeemed. The darkness was pushed back. Life was given to these men. And the people of the town reject the one who redeemed them and ask him to leave. Are they scared? Sure, yes. Are they frustrated? You bet. Mad at the financial loss? And yet to the point that they kick him out of their town and beg him to leave. May we be a people who instead of merely wanting what Jesus brings that might bring financial gain to us, be those who care more for people than pigs. Care more for people. Desiring to see people come to be redeemed more so than my desires for financial gain. What I think would be correct in a culture politically or relationally, but desiring to see people come to know Christ, people to be redeemed, a willingness to go to people who might be similar to these men, cast out of society, not wanted by others, and yet Jesus comes to their docks' boat near their place that they might be redeemed. An impossible situation for anyone else, but not for Jesus. Jesus is the one who has created these angels that turned against him. It's Jesus who casts them out and redeems these men who want to become followers of Christ, and yet the culture can only see the financial loss and reject Jesus. He is the Son of God, and they beg him to leave their region. The second scene, we have Jesus 
the story of a paralytic coming. In other texts and other gospels, this story is the one where uh, the house is so full of people as Jesus is teaching and healing others that the friends actually pull apart parts of the roof and lower their friend down onto a, uh, from a cot. And Jesus heals him. This is the same story that is given there. But notice verse 1 of chapter 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over. He goes somewhere else. They begged him to leave. He leaves. And he comes to his own city. He comes to a different city. And here in this city, what he's facing is not demon-possessed men who look as though these men looked, but now people who maybe are much more cleaned up. We know there's a couple people here. We know there's a whole bunch of people who are hearing his teaching, following after him. We see a paralytic and his friends. We also see in this scene some scribes. You have some religious leaders who are here. In this scene, it's not someone who is demon-possessed, but someone who's uh, paralyzed, lying on a bed, not able to move. And notice that Jesus' response is much more than merely, uh, you may go, but here his conversation with them is seeing their faith. He recognizes that the friends trusted that this one is able to heal people. This one is, the friends are bringing this friend of theirs to Jesus. The demon-possessed people had no friends. They had no one around them. And yet this one who's laying on a cot and is paralyzed can't walk on his own to go find Jesus to heal him, has friends who can take him to Jesus, friends who have faith and that believe that Jesus can heal him. And what a gift. The others had to go find their way to Jesus on their own and for different purposes. And yet this one has friends who take him to Jesus. Jesus immediately doesn't necessarily focus just on the man's uh, paralysis, but notice that in verse 2, as they bring him to Jesus, he's lying on a bed, Jesus sees their faith. And instead of saying, as he's often said, take up your bed and walk, you are healed, instead of touching the man and healing his body, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Earlier we saw that people are more important, far more important than pigs. Here in this second scene, we see that sin is far worse than paralysis. There's something far worse than physical suffering, and that is sin and its effects. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. The atrocity here is not that a man was healed. Jesus did that a lot. And in fact, if Jesus only went around healing people and providing them food, giving water, turning water into wine and these things, he would have been loved and adored by everybody. There would be no reason to kill him. He's a miracle worker. But Jesus, in coming in to inaugurate his kingdom, does not come merely as a miracle worker to provide moralistic uh, gifts to people just to make them happy and wealthy and to heal them. Jesus comes to bring in his kingdom. And his kingdom while uniting people to himself, the demon-possessed men, now are united to Christ, maybe cast off from society, but by faith are united to Jesus, the gospel also brings division. At its heart, brings division. It divides and judges and separates. Not everyone will be redeemed. The simple story of the demons are not redeemed and will not be. 
And yet those two men who were ravaged by them are. A city pushed Jesus outside of their gates. And those men who were redeemed by Jesus wanted to get in his boat and follow him. Here the problem is that for the Jewish leaders, Jesus asserts that he can forgive the man's sins. That is something only God can do. And since this Jewish carpenter is acting as though he can do a divine action, and in doing so imply that he himself is God, they charge him in front of everybody else with blasphemy. Jesus says, take heart, my son. Look at the language even here and in the story before of Jesus' own heart for these people who are ravaged by sin and demons. Jesus goes to those who are demon-possessed, and here, his heart for, look at the language even. This doesn't say, your sins are forgiven, but relationally. There's already a relationship with the God of the universe, the long-awaited Messiah King Jesus. Take comfort, my boy. Your sins are forgiven. There's a relationship automatically. As the scribes begin to doubt within themselves, this man is blaspheming. Notice how Jesus already shows authority as the Son of Man to be able to even read their thoughts. And someone reading commentaries, I heard Bob last week bashing commentaries quite a bit. I don't want to bash them, but in reading one, somebody said, you know, maybe he's not actually able to read their thoughts. He's observing their body language. And while that would be perceptive and no doubt, I just love it. There's multiple times in the Gospels where it says, and Jesus knowing their thoughts. I would tend to think that the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus, the eternal God himself who created us, knows every single thing that we're thinking, even as he's walking on earth. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, oh, why do you think this is evil in your hearts? Why are you thinking this evil against me, that this is blasphemy? It's sort of saying, don't you know who I am? I was just on this other part of the island, and the demons know who I am. How do you not know who I am? You are the teachers of Israel. He says, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? I don't know. What do you think? What is easier for us to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? In one sense, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, isn't it? No one can actually see justifiable proof that you have forgiven somebody else's sins. You could turn to the person next to you and say, friend, your sins are forgiven. Thank you. They have no way of actually knowing if that has occurred from a human perspective or from a skeptic's perspective. But for a Jew, it's easier to hear someone say, or to say, you rise and walk. Because we recognize that it is only God who can forgive sins. Now, doctors can do an amazing work to help heal someone or bring about healing. Moms have salve and ointment that can make their baby's boo-boos feel better. We can see and recognize some of that, knowing that it is ultimately only God who heals, but forgiveness of sins is only something that God himself can do. So which is easier to say? 
But notice Jesus doesn't stop there and just leave them with a puzzle, which sometimes he does and can, but he continues on in verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man who has authority to do whatever it is that he pleases. The same Son of Man who can calm the storm, the same Son of Man who can call disciples to follow him, who is ushering in his kingdom, the Son of Man who is King of kings, creator God himself. He has authority on earth to forgive sins. So Jesus looks at the paralytic, and instead of saying this time, your sins are forgiven, he says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he did. And the crowd saw it, and the crowd see what Jesus is doing, and notice the language, they are afraid. Same response. The demons are cast out, go into a herd of pigs, and the pigs crash into the ocean and are drowned. The town hears about it. They are afraid. This group here sees Jesus and what he can do. He has authority to forgive sins and to heal. This is God himself. They are afraid. Earlier, though, for those who didn't believe in who Jesus was, didn't recognize that this one who can do this ought to be followed, rejected him. Asked him to leave their city. Here, notice the response of being afraid. And when they, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given authority to men, their fear was awe. Their fear was different than merely just being afraid and wanting to run and hide, although sometimes that can be part of it as well. But their fear was they glorified God in their response. There was faith. The heart of faith that brought the man to Jesus then all of a sudden, there's others who see it, and their response of fear turns to faith in that it glorifies God. Jesus is called the Son of God by the demons in that first scene. Here, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. He is the one who will come, and as Matthew 1, says, he will come and save his people from their sins. Sin is far worse than paralysis. Being Forgiven of your sins is far greater than living a long, healthy life. Being forgiven of your sins is far greater of a gift than having health, wealth, and prosperity. Sin is far worse than paralysis. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, not merely to make them physically whole. Jesus comes that we might be flourishing for all of eternity in a relationship with him. Jesus comes and finds people docks his boat in front of people who are a mess, like you and I. It would not do us well to think that demon-possessed people are of a different category than we are in the midst of our own sin. Can you only imagine us going up to these demon-possessed people and looking at them and going, the smell, the sights, the matted down hair, the crazy eyes, and all of those things, and going, I don't think I should be here. This is a bad part of town, and we would probably be right. Everybody else is avoiding them, right? Except for Jesus. And yet, in the reality is with our sins, we are the exact same. And God doesn't avoid us. God doesn't come and look at us and say, Ooh, when, you, when you shower up and you get all cleaned up and you, you don't smell like that, I'll be happy to come and interact with you and unite you to myself. He comes to us. He comes all the way to us, all the way down to us, makes himself just like us. 
He comes and he joins himself to sinners to redeem them. Jesus has come and he has called us to himself. The moment that we begin to think we are more cleaned up than others, the more we begin to forget the gospel. And the more we begin to think of ourselves as worthy of something, the more we actually begin to look more like scribes. The ones who begin to think uh, wrongly about Jesus and what he does. The more we maybe begin to act more like the town who cast him out because he didn't do exactly what they were thinking he should do. But they did things, Jesus came and did things differently. And they didn't like the response of what he did. They wanted healing and financial prosperity. Send it into something that's not going to make us lose money. Do it all you want. Don't kill our pigs. I was thinking about this, and, you know, we do love animals in our home, and, um, and yet there's also a recognition of hunting and those things and the goodness of it. And, and but I love bacon, and I love ham, and I love all those things that pigs bring. And uh, so there's an aspect, just from a human perspective, you're mourning the loss of 2,000 pigs. You just see bacon slices rolling right off the cliff, right? A ham sandwich going down. And yet as I was reading, you remember that the original readers are Jewish readers? Someone was saying they're actually probably reading it reveling that these dirty animals are being put to their death. I tried to put it into a context for myself. I hate rats. Like, imagining 2,000 rats running off of a cliff. I'm rejoicing, okay? God's creation, I understand. I'm still rejoicing, okay? And so a similar aspect of the response of the Jewish readers as they're hearing of this and yet seeing that people are far more important than pigs and rats. Jesus comes to redeem us. He comes to save us no matter how sick, no matter how diseased we are. He has come to us. Can we do the same? We ought to do the same. We ought to go to those who look different than us, vote different than us, think different than us, smell different than us, talk different than us. Go towards them with the hope of the gospel, not to clean them up and to change them, that they're more like us. But they come to glorify God. They come to want to follow after Jesus and get in his boat. May we be focused on faith, recognizing that sin is far more, far worse than paralysis. All too often, we can look and see our kingdom, our country, and want it done our way. And too often this leads to divisions and fightings. And I just wonder what it would look like if we looked at the political scene today. And instead of focusing merely on what we're desiring to be done, let's just keep saying politically because that's what's happened recently. If we would look and we would see the need for faith. And that sin is far worse a political system or a person being in office that you might not have wanted. There's something happening that is not what we wanted at all. Laws are coming down the pipe that we don't want. What is our response? Are we more concerned about sin and the need for faith? More than we are than a community running itself in a certain way or things happening the way that we want them and expect them to happen? It would change the way that we pray. 
It would change the way that we engage other people if we care more about sin and the need for faith than we do a kingdom of our own being inaugurated. It's Jesus' kingdom that we pray would expand. And I pray for myself that that would be true of the words that I speak and the actions that I do and going towards those that wouldn't be like myself and recognizing that Jesus did the exact same for me. When I begin to lose sight of the gospel, I begin to think an elitist mindset, a selfish mindset, and one that finds myself and my own uh, small struggles to be far, far greater than someone else's sin and their need for faith, or than someone else as a person made in the image of God and in need of redemption. But we continue to have a focus uh, on the goodness of the gospel that has come to us sinners, and that continues to go to sinners for the kingdom of God and for his glory. Would you join me as we pray?